Do you think transgenderism is something is something totally new, or is it a type of a thing? Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. Nathan, there's a question that is that's coming up more and more, and I think it's a really important one. It also is a pretty complex question, and it has to do with transgenderism. And it's not academic anymore. Certainly, it can include academic aspects. This The issue of transgenderism raises some very interesting conceptual questions as well, and there are there's a fascinating history here. There are fascinating sociological facts. But when this comes up, in my conversations at least, Nathan, it's very personal. Mm-hmm. And it's often parents talking to me. And so when we raise it, we're raising a personal question. I think it's important to state that up front. And that's very much my hope is that's very much going to characterize the the tone as we as we try to talk about this it's also worth pointing out if it's not obvious already this there's there is a lot that could be said here the best that Nathan and I are going to be able to do here is scratch the surface get the wheels turning but this is certainly a question i think where a lot of people are looking for guidance and where we want to work together to figure out how we can best creatively love our neighbor. And in this case, our neighbor is often a family member, often often a child, or often somebody we've known for a very long time, a friend, I mean, just more and more of these stories. And I'm just curious, just as we start, Nathan, are you is this coming up for you as well in your own conversations and in your own community? Uh, I probably haven't talked to anybody about this for three or four days now. So... Yeah. I mean, it's, there it's a live it. issue. Um, and then, and that's like a serious conversation, but so for those of you listening and you're like, ah, this isn't really a big deal for me. Uh, if you have a, a younger friend or a student or somebody, they have trans, um, uh, classmates, coworkers. Mm-hmm. It's, um, I mean, it's, it's, I, I guess Cameron, some of it is like part of the question behind it isn't in how to think through this Christianly, but also there's a, a bit of a shock, I think, at the scale of it and the speed of the growth of that scale yeah, that plays into a lot of the questions behind it. So we are wrestling with a multivariable cultural phenomenon at the same time that uh, lots of people are dealing with this on a, a personal level, a personal issue. So yeah, I think most people who are actively involved in an outward facing contact with the world at this point, uh, whether it's in their churches and the families of their friends, classmates, wherever um, that these are, yeah, serious, serious questions and conversations. I don't think largely that the conversations that I've been in uh, part of, part of the reason the the conversation can be difficult is because it goes to extremes so quickly. There's the whole like, well, that's Mm -hmm. transphobic kind of thing. Actually, I haven't heard, this is just my Nathan's perspective on the ground. Most of the conversations have been out of deep love and uh, care for the person and have nothing to do with fear or phobia. So if you'll allow us to bracket that whole category, and that's not to say that I don't think that that exists uh, places, there's evidence of that, but I'm talking about within the church here as Christians thinking about this in a wholesome manner, fear is not the predominant factor. There are no phobias to this. I think there are general concerns and curiosities and a great deal of confusion all around. So um, I just want to set say that at the outset here that we're setting aside um, the, I, I, some of the ways in which this is painted as a any any disagreement is mm-hmm. violence or something like that. Um, I'm aware that that conversation is there, but we are not speaking in those terms for the purposes of this podcast. So I think along those lines, Nathan, that's really helpful. It'll be it'll be good to come at this in in sort of an organized fashion because the conversation just veers off in so many different directions very quickly. And as you pointed out, often goes in an extreme direction. So just for the purposes of starting out here, there are biological aspects to this question. We'll we'll put those to the side just for a little bit here. We'll come to that. But there are biological aspects. There are historical aspects to this. 
there are sociological aspects to this question, and there are theological aspects as well, or better yet, really spiritual aspects, right? So biological, historical, sociological, and spiritual. I think those are some helpful categories that, that will guide our, our conversation here. Yeah, and, and actually, you listing those out is helpful to us because it also points to the difficulty of having this conversation well, because to the extent that this conversation is biological, historical, sociological, and the- theological, who's an expert in all four of those? Exactly nobody that I know. Um, however, that doesn't mean that people can't say things. And so p- part of this comes down to the academic perception of where is this an academic, uh, where, do, where, does it, where should this conversation be taking place? And so I would make a pitch to say that the church is a wonderful place for this conversation to be taking place because you have people who are deeply embedded and working uh, thoroughly in all of these categories and have a, a common perspective on life mm-hmm. that can be brought into it. So this isn't to say that it can't be discussed. It's just to say that there isn't one particular field of study. Now, I know there are academic programs that focus on this, but if we broaden it out and look at some of these broad foundational things, it's going to be hard to have an expert on this topic other than personal experience. And it also shows you that it's not right. Well, and it also shows you that it's not going to be one, generally one conversation or one magic bullet of an answer. It Mm -hmm. is going to be a conversation, often many conversations and lots and lots of prayer, lots of tears probably. But you know what? This, that's that process is not, or at least should not be just limited to an issue as complex as this one. I mean, that's generally how we go about walking through great moral trials with human beings, you know, whether they're struggling with an addiction of any kind. I mean, if you, it's really, it's, it's relational through and through, it's always personal. So I think sometimes we have in our heads, if I just have this perfect textbook answer and this perfect textbook scenario where they, you know, they hit me with all the right questions and I'm perfectly prepared for every one of them, they'll change their minds instantly. And that, that just human beings aren't that simple. It works. You know, if, if great change is going to take place, it's always gradual. The Lord is at work behind the scenes. The Holy spirit is moving. So, I mean, there is a, there's inescapably mystical aspect to great moral change in a person. So I think it's helpful to bear that in mind. There's another footnote for you. Nathan, did you have something to add to that? Yeah, well, I want to add one more level of confusion and then um, oh, no. and then ask you a question just to put you on the spot. So the other, the other confusing part of this is, is that I don't know, tell me if you think this is right. This is me just thinking out loud. Pun only slightly intended. That's what we do. That the... The church struggles to answer some questions about what it is to be a man and what it means to be a woman in general. So set aside transgenderism, gender and Mm. sex have been difficult territory in recent years for the church in general. So I think sometimes when you're not exactly sure about the stability of the position that you're standing on, it makes it harder to deal with a cultural. um, And so that's a whole nother ball of wax, but just to lay that out there is something that I think contributes to some of this. So anyway, all right, now to my question to you, do you think transgenderism is something, is something totally new or is it a type of a thing? Yeah. And I think that is an important question here. And so let's go to history real quickly. So is it new? I'm going to give a frustrating answer. I think yes and no. I think transgenderism is a particularly, probably very, I would say, radical expression of a basic line of thinking that is in America's DNA. So let me give you a quote that I use often because it's just such an astonishing quote. And again, just to give credit where credit was credit is due, my attention was drawn to this by Roger Lundeen. Roger Lundin taught at Wheaton. He was an English professor and he died unexpectedly about, I think maybe six years ago or something like that. It was very sad. Phenomenal teacher was known pretty well as a Emily Dickinson scholar, but he drew my attention to this quote in one of his fabulous books. I just can't recommend him high enough. He's not enough. People don't read him, 
But he, so this comes from Ralph Waldo Emerson. And so Ralph Waldo Emerson, who is one of the great American sages, for better or for worse, said, history is an impertinence and an injury if it be anything less than a cheerful apologue or parable of my own being and becoming. An apologue is just a moral fable, by the way. So history is an impertinence and an injury if it be anything more than a cheerful apologue or parable of my own being and becoming. That, so we're living what, in the what year, shadow. What of year that would quote that have now. been written? I don't know. It would be. In, I think you'd have to look at what look up Ralph Waldo Emerson's life. I mean, I think eighteen hundreds at some point. We'll we'll we will get that little factoid for you because that that'll that'll frame it a little bit. But certainly an early voice. That's a very radical statement about identity, though, is it not? So he died I mean, essentially in saying, 1882. So. So there you go. Is is pre eighteen eighty two? Yeah. So I mean, a relatively modern thinker, but America again is an is a very very young nation. But that that line of thinking, the whole the transgender question flows directly out of that. Let's tease that out a bit because the notion that the contingencies of your life, your personal circumstances your family, your community, the time and place in which you were born, the notion that all of those are somehow expendable if they get in the way of your own being and becoming, first of all, is grossly inaccurate, by the way. <laughs> You're not a total and complete product of your environment, but you are fundamentally shaped by your environment. We know this. I mean, that's just, it's going gonna, it's gonna to play an active role in, in kind of cultivating who you are. But also, the notion that all of that stuff can just be pushed aside so you can express yourself in any way you want or that you have some personal vision of your own being and becoming and that anything that gets in the way of that is somehow an affront to you. So you can see how in our own day, now I'm, it's pure speculation. I'm not sure what Emerson, for instance, would think of some of our radical identity experiments today. but it would be pretty hard to argue that it's not of a piece with what he's what he's saying there it's essentially the disney adage of you you should you know you can be whatever you want to be whatever you want to become and that's why i often point out you know what was former first lady michelle obama's autobiography called her memoir it's called becoming which is just a huge word in the landscape of american identity we we love the idea of becoming the problem is, though, what are we supposed to be? That's where I think a good deal of confusion comes in. But before, before we go into the, some of the, the negative aspects of that conception, maybe let me just allow Nathan to respond a little bit here to Sage Emerson. <laughs> well, so I think the, you know, you've often talked in the past about discernment being a distinction between saying this, not this. Um, I wonder if there's a sense where some of the decisions we make in life are not choosing something else. It's just choosing not to be what is. So you you don't necessarily need to have a whole mm -hmm. different um, vision of where you want to go in order to leave. You just have to have a vision that where you yeah. are isn't good enough to stay. And so I, I wonder if there isn't an element of that that's woven into this too, of saying, well, I don't know what it means to live in California, but it's better than living where I am, so I'm going to go there. Or fill in the blank, whatever historically has been kind of the uh, paradise that's laid out there. Um, so do, do you think, I, I guess the question I'm I'm asking of Emerson here is, do you have to have an idea of what it is that you're becoming in order to stop being what you are? And that seems to be a, a live yeah. question in my mind that pertains to this. Yeah. So the answer is in the short run, no, you know, and so what, what would underwrite this view of, of human identity? I think what you you're looking at is a view of a human, of human freedom, a very radical view of human freedom that says, you are free if you're free from all constraints, right? So that, so just as, as long as you're free from, 
you're free. And this is also, we're not, and by the way, a lot of names are being thrown out here. We're going to get real practical again. I'm always afraid that this will run the risk of sounding too abstract, but this is connected to this view of freedom is also, it has a political precedent. And the key figures there for the American experiment are Thomas Hobbes, his book, Leviathan, which may maybe a grad school professor at some point in your life inflicted that on you or portions of it, I hope. But he he basically argues that, you know, you, you are radically free and free for Thomas Hobbes just means that you're free from any anything that conflicts with your will. You know, that's your radical. That's freedom from. So negative freedom, positive freedom would give you a vision of what you're for, not just freedom from, but freedom for. That's a huge, huge difference. But most Americans, most of us operate with a kind of tacit view of freedom that is the negative view. And that's not because we have some clearly spelled out philosophy. That's just because that's the air we breathe. That's that's the reigning assumption. That's the tacit assumption, I would say, of most Americans. Do you, do yeah, you, know, do you know the motto of the state that I live in? West Virginia's oh motto, mountaineers are always free. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. So to prove your point. Yeah. And so, yes. And so, no, do you need to have a, a particular destination for that? No. In the short run, no, you don't. And so there's a really haunting example that Andrew Del Banco uses in his book, The The Real American Dream. And the subtitle is A Meditation on Hope. And I'm aware I'm, I'm just, you know, naming more names here. But this is really helpful. So Andrew Del Banco talks about this one part of the Disney park, Disneyland called Tomorrowland. I think it's called, it's either Tomorrowland or Tomorrow World. I'm going to screw this up probably. I haven't been to any of the Disney's knock on wood, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure that's in the, in the cards for me at some point here in the near future. I've, I have children, but so far I've avoided it. Anyway, Tomorrowland, I think it's what it's called. And the idea was initially when this was, this was part of the original Disney park and it's still there. The, the idea was that this would be a futuristic exhibit. But Walt Disney pointed out, yeah, the problem is that we're always moving too fast. You know, the, the rate of technological advancement is too quick. So no matter what we do, it's going to look outdated. So on a superficial level, he was right. But there's a, there's a bigger problem Del Banco is pointing out. And that is that Americans don't really want a destination. For Americans, it's all about the journey. It's not about the destination. And so the notion that you don't have some kind of a clear vision guiding your identity experiments or, you know, guiding your view of human freedom, many people, if you, you know, first of all, if you even raise that question, I think many people would say, well, yeah, I don't need one. Who cares? As long as I'm, as I'm free and people aren't getting in my way and I'm allowed to pursue my own, I can go on my own journey. I don't have a problem with you going on your own journey, but don't you impose your rules of the road on me. I mean, again, I think most people, that's the, that's a tacit philosophy that's under the hood. They don't, they don't, it's not clearly spelled out. Those are the most powerful philosophies, by the way, the things that you just assume. And I think that's, again, a reigning assumption is that as long as you're, you're uninhibited and you, then you can figure things out and you don't have to have a clear idea of where you're going. As long as you're not hurting anybody, you know, you can, you can move forward and that's, that's how you seek your own fulfillment. That's how you, that's how you make, make yourself in a sense. Cause I mean, what Emerson is doing, and now we slide into the theological category here to point out a, an important difference, but Emerson's view is very much that identity is what you make. But as Christians, by the way, a stark difference would be that, no, you don't make your, there's nothing about your identity that you make. You just, dis, you discover who you are. You don't yeah. make so yourself. Yeah. At the at the risk of the very high probability that we're overthinking this, the summary of everything that you've just said over the last fifteen minutes is largely that nobody should be surprised about transgenderism. Am I hearing you correctly on that? Yes, but with a with a couple of qualifications. I do think that I think I would use the word radical to describe transgenderism in so many different ways because Let's just to bring in the biological category here. Well, so wait, is is it radical or is it just run running an idea to its logical conclusion? Yes. So both. Or is that the same? I mean, thing? I think radical. Well, I'm saying radical because of the consequences that it has. 
So I said okay. I answered your one your earlier question. Can you know? Do we need a definitive destination to, you know, embark on our own journey of freedom? And I said in the short run, no. But in the long run, yes. Now that now this is this is based on my Christian convictions and assumptions, but yes. So let's zoom out for just a second and address the elephant in the room here, and that is chronic mental illness and serious, serious depression and just so much. I, I want to steer away from the medical terminology and just say just so much turmoil and pain. People are in, especially young people, people are in so much pain right now. So much psychic pain. I mean, I, I would just call it spirit. They're in spiritual turmoil and pain. Now, why is that? I mean, there are a variety of factors, and that is a massive question, but I think we have to say that some of it is to do with the fact that the the burden of your identity and who you are was not meant to be on your own shoulders. You're not a necessary, self-sustaining, self-created being. God alone is a self-sufficient being. And so to impose that kind of pressure on on yourself, and it's not, we're, people aren't just imposing it on themselves. The the cultural pressure here, and here's a sociological fact, the cultural pre pressure to experiment and basically be whatever you want to be, no matter what, the cultural pressure there is tremendous and it's mounting. And I think that's another reason why a lot of people look at this and it is alarming. You mentioned how, how just quickly all of this is escalating. And that's what... I mean, again, the term that sociologists use for that is social acceleration. And that has a lot to do with technology and social media and the ways in... So trends and different fashions and different ideas take hold so much, so much faster than they have in the past. And mindsets can become internalized so much, so much quicker because of the rate of technological amplification. So everything is moving so incredibly fast here, but there's that pressure. And I think so many young people feel this terrible pressure that they don't need to feel, but also the sense of this underlying sense of purposelessness. Because what, I and again, speaking as a Christian, so this is my assumption, but people don't just need the meaning that they make. We need intrinsic meaning. We need intrinsic significance. Because if, if, after all, if God made us and made us for fellowship with himself, then what we need is something that's bigger than our own wishes and, and fantasies and dreams. But on a cultural level, we can't get it. Every, all we're being told is, no, 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 it's, it's whatever you want. It's whatever you say. You call the shots. But what happens when what you want isn't enough and you recognize that it's not enough? I think that's the dilemma that more and more people are facing. Yeah, so the burden of being the one that has to make yourself lovable is the yeah. exhausting weight of yeah. our time. So, I mean, I think particularly when I was speaking at universities more, that's not a transgender issue. That's just like everybody's trying to do that. Of And I mean, a lot of marketing is geared toward making you think that you need this in order to be more attractive or there's that whole commercial aspect of it. But there is, by and large, just a heavy sense of I am the one that has to make myself worthwhile and has to make myself lovable and have I not if I mean so that's the double-edged sword like if you're the one who provides the foundation of the value of your own life then you're the one who has to provide the foundation for the value of your own life and by and large uh, experience shows that we're not equipped to do that well so I think that's that's the heartbreaker in it for me yeah. is that a lot of this um is a manifestation of, I think you use the word, it's unnecessary, but it's it can only be seen as unnecessary if you believe that you have an intrinsic identity that's given to you, that's right. gifted to you, rather, mm -hmm. um, from something outside of yourself. So that's where there's really going to be a fairly high impasse in a lot of these conversations because you as a Christian approaching a lot of these are operating with the sense that your activities are not the foundation of your identity where there are other people who very much believe that their activities are the foundation of their identity. Uh, and so mm -hmm. then anytime that you, or that, yeah, their activities are the foundation. So then anytime that you're critiquing an activity, somebody's going to feel like that's a personal threat. That's where the violence comes in here. You're threatening my identity because you're critiquing my activity. 
which doesn't even make sense from a Christian mm -hmm. perspective because we think that our activities are independent of the intrinsic value that we have if our identity is gifted to us. So too many things sounded the same when I was saying all of that. But if you listen, no. go back and listen to it slowly, I think all those dots connect. Well, let me see if I can state it concisely because it's very important. So be Christians, as Christians, we believe human beings are made in the image of God and are, in have, are endowed with intrinsic worth. But on a cultural level, many people simply think you are what you do and you have to sort of justify your own value. So if you understand, if you, if you, if you pause on that for a second, then you can begin to understand why somebody would basically object and say, you can't separate my behavior from my identity. So in other words, if I identify this way, whether I identify as, you know, if, 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 if I'm struggling if, with, you know, gender dysphoria, or if I identify as gay, whatever it is, if you reject my lifestyle and in, in a sense, my behavior, you're rejecting me. Because somebody, somebody who's of the mindset that you basically are what you do, or that you can't make that fundamental distinction, that's how, it, I'm not saying that's, that's correct at all. What I'm saying is this is, this will, I'm trying to help make sense of why there's so much hostility sometimes in these conversations. Because again, chalk this up to what you lose when Christianity is subtracted from the equation. The grounding, that fundamental grounding of human value and intrinsic worth so that no longer is your worth dependent on your own hands and feet in what you're doing. But it's, it's a gift. It's bestowed upon you by your maker. But take the maker away, and that becomes much more problematic and difficult. So that's just to give a perspective on these conversations and pr to prepare us in advance for some real serious strong emotions and anger. We should expect those strong emotions and that anger not necessarily right, but it is understandable. And I think that can that can help bolster our compassion and our firmness, but our compassion as well. Nathan, you had something to add yeah. there. Well, so, okay, so here's another wrinkle in this, is that historically, when we're speaking of, of gender and human sexuality, there are, well, let's just go with gender. The church and the natural sciences were in total agreement on this that there's male and female, and that those are fixed categories. And so there, there was a, a historical, it's, it's been interesting. I think those of you who have played around in the apologetics world long enough have recognized that often in a lot of cultural debates, the hard sciences and Christianity are in the same corner in a lot of the discussions, that there's a, a deep harmony there. And some of the disputes that science and faith have had are kind of in-house academic conversations rather than the real practical realities and as far as the way they're lived out in the real world. But this is one in which biological sciences um, comported deeply with, and God made them male and female. There was a, a history mm -hmm. there and a biological look at these are, these categories are distinctive. They're real and they are what they are. Um, particularly, I think even since the development of an understanding of things deeper in our genetic material, particularly down to the level of chromosomes of, yeah, at that degree of biology, things, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago seemed extremely clear. And so now you're, you're saying there's hostility in the conversation. I think part of it is just confusion too, of people saying, what, hang on, wait, what's going on here? How is that even, um, but we're coming up on, I remember like nine years ago, reading an article of the mental distress that I think it was an interview with 47 pregnant men in Boston were having because they were biological women, had transitioned to living as men, and then got pregnant. And that, mm -hmm. that was causing them extreme distress and having them second-guess their identity because they were sure they were male and they were pregnant, and they knew that that was a problem. Um, now, by and large, I think a lot of the language is, oh, yeah, men can be pregnant kind of thing has, has caught up. but that's where the confusion comes from because a lot of people would look at that and say, how in the world did you get to a place where you could be surprised that you could get pregnant if you're a biological female, even if you identify as a man? So those, those two things, I, I just want to put her in the background there as well, that you talked, we don't want to 
negate the biological component of this that historically comported very well with the theological part of this, and I think still does, by the way. But mm-hmm. the way in which we're culturally talking about the science behind some of these things has shifted so radically that now it seems like there's an imbalance in the theological perspective of addressing some of these. Does that, um, is there a more concise way of saying that? Well, but it's also worth pointing out that there's very serious tension between the natural sciences and a lot of transgender literature and ideology because the natural sciences will bear out a normative view of sex for the most part, right? Because they're just going to, they're just going to focus on biology and anatomical features. But at this point, I want to bring in another element and then we we need to talk practically about some possible just how how we begin responding and and how we walk through this i think a lot of what we're trying to model right now is even in our language i think it's it's important to to point out that nathan and i we could be using a lot we could be speaking in stronger terms on some of this nathan could have spoken a lot more strongly on people who, you know, pregnant women who are surprised that they're pregnant because they now identify as men, you can use, you know, and a lot of, a lot of people who have, you know, will employ colorful language and, and get a little bit more sardonic. We try not to do that because we want to honor the human beings who we're trying to reach. And we're aiming also at what we hope are persuasive conversations and we're trying to model that in our comportment here as well so that's just a, a, a basic note for some of what we're what we're aiming at here but i think it's worth pointing out as well and this is this chalk this up to the not necessarily new category again when it comes to gender dysphoria even so 100 years ago 200 years ago would would somebody have had a thought along the lines of i'm a man trapped in a woman's body Probably not. But what is, what does have a very ancient pedigree is a fundamental sense of alienation from one's own body. That is a deeply ancient line of thinking. And it has a whole system of thought built around it a lot for the most part. I mean, if you look at a lot of ancient Greek thinkers, now there's some of them, you know, would be gnostic sects you know that you know broadly speaking look at the body as some sort of a prison and the higher life is there are two different extremes to that by the way there's the higher life is either one of you know sort of self-negation and and you know you know kind of very you know you're kind of a mystical life of of contemplation and, and rigorous discipline and asceticism or the other extreme would be, well, your body is expendable, so who cares? Just live a life of complete hedonism and indulgence. There were, there were two major expressions there. But also, Plato doesn't have the highest view of the human body. He, he, he's going to prioritize the contemplative, the life of the mind, which is, which is you know, in, in the Platonic system, superior, the whole, the whole world of the forms. And again, this sounds like it's getting a little abstract, but think practically about this. When you feel seriously sick, you know, and a lot of us, this is going to be pretty familiar to us where, I mean, we're again, here we are again in a COVID surge, right? Nothing like physical illness to sort of reinforce with, for you that alienation you can feel sometimes between your, your body and your soul. Another, another practical example here. There's a whole genre of horror film, you know, this here, oh, I would, yeah, here I would bring this up. Yeah. Here we go. Here we go. But it's called, and it was pioneered by a director named David Cronenberg. If Cronenberg doesn't sound familiar to you, you probably know him by his remake of The Fly starring Jeff Goldblum. Or you don't. Or Jeff Gold, Or you don't. Yeah. Or if you're Nathan, you don't. But where Jeff Goldblum portrays a guy named Seth Brundle, who's a brilliant, eccentric, lovable scientist who creates this telepod. It's a teleportation device. One day he gets drunk and decides to use it without having properly tested it. And a fly, a common house fly, gets in there. And as he's teleporting himself from one pod to the next, the computer fuses the fly's genetic structure with his own. 
And then this hideous sort of transmutation takes place slowly throughout the film. He's becoming more and more, he's becoming this giant monstrous fly. And this, this people, critics have called this, have dubbed this body horror. But the notion that you're, you know, your body, there's a fundamental alienation between who you feel you are and what your body actually is. And so just to note that that is that's a, that's not a new thought and yeah, well, hang also on second, hang on a second let me yeah. interrupt here because yeah, yeah. so like read ovid or something like that and all the ideology right of the production, oh, ovid's a big one yep that there's this sense that most of that though is a punishment from the gods not something mm-hmm. that's developed internally and so that alienation is a curse not a um not a desire of the individual. So, I, yeah, I just wonder how that fits in there because it seems like transspeciesism, I mean, Kafka on down or backwards, that that seems to ha- be a bigger piece of the conversation about transitioning to something else it seems to be across species, not across gender. But maybe that's my misread of classical literature. Well, no, no, it's just a... No, that's just a picture or it's because it, it's just it's a metaphor for that feeling of I am something else and I'm tr- and I'm trapped in my own body. And so this is this, you know, biological set of coordinates that I was born into doesn't match who I actually who I actually am. So that 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 feeling of of kind of biological dislocation but again, I think we're in a cultural moment that makes that thought so much more plausible to so many people because we have been internalizing the message in a you know from millions of different voices all day long, every day. You can be whatever you want to be. You can be whatever you want to be. Don't let anything hold you back. It's the journey. It's not the destination. Destinations are things that are foisted on you, created by somebody else. Don't live up to somebody else's dreams and expectations live up to your own dreams and expectations. You do you. And I think, so all of that converging together, I think has made this a moment where that is, is, is actually, a, it's an understandable mode of behavior for those who don't have a, a kind of a more, a more grounded assumption about human identity. Yeah, so this whole idea of like, essentially, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, is that we are talking about limitations that are intrinsic to who we are that come from our biology and from other things mm-hmm. um, that are intrinsic to us as well. But I mean, part of that is the experimentation of childhood is figuring out where those boundaries are. Um, I mean, that was like the story of Nathan growing up. I wonder if I can ride my bike off of this picnic table. I wonder if I can jump mm-hmm. off of this and it won't hurt. I wonder if I can light this on fire and it won't blow up. I mean, that was like what I did hours upon hours each day. Yep. And each night my mom came and tucked my brothers and we you know, tucked us in and brought peroxide and band-aids and, you know, it was just a routine part of bleeding of running into the world and figuring out where the limits on things were. And sometimes you could push things way farther than other people historically thought were possible. And there was a lot of fun discovery there. And then other things, it just really hurt. And you knew don't do that again. And so I guess one of the questions that I have on some of these pursuits is that they only work in synthetic situations. Like, is, is this a, there, there's a technological necessity to some of these identities that w- weren't, that made them non-realities in the past. And mm-hmm. so some of it is a, it's a technology issue at the same time. We didn't add that in. We talked about biological, historical, sociological, theological. There's a technological yeah, right. component to this as well yep. that um, it was very difficult to be able to lactate without getting pregnant in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, well, that's definitely chemically possible now. You know, so it's there, there's, a, there's a new level of this that I just thought of here at the edge of like where the limits of reality previously were some of those are changing now because of what technology can enable us to physiologically and, and medically and surgically do to our bodies. Mm-hmm. So that, that seems to me to be a significant accelerant in and this conversation as well. 
That's new. Yeah. And the, so the technological breakthroughs that have enabled some of these pursuits are, those are genuinely new. You heard it. We're going to say that there are, there is something new here, but the consequences for all of this, I think bear out the traditional view of human beings as they're made, which is why you're seeing if you, I mean, again, if you peer into and this really should be something we come back to because there are so many aspects to this. We probably should have made this a two-parter. But if you peer into some of the original, for instance, the the doctor who originally performed sexual reassignment surgeries at Johns Hopkins won't do that. Won't perform the procedure anymore because of some of the adverse effects, and also because of the high suicide rate associated with it. So there are. There are novel technological procedures that have come along, but human nature hasn't fundamentally changed. And so the, the consequence and the consequences bear that out. And I think, again, that's another that's another layer of sadness here, too. And it's worth pointing out also that the a lot of a lot of people, for the most part, in my experience, this is anecdotal, but most of the people I'm talking about who are deeply affected by this are disproportionately young. And you talked about childhood being an important time of boundary testing and experimentation. And it's, it's, I think this is where a lot of people are genuinely, genuinely alarmed because younger people are in some cases being misled or pressured into decisions that are irreversible in a sense or, or or that have irreversible consequences because there's a good chance that i think many people who are you know quote struggling well who are struggling with this and who are who are dealing with some of these issues will will move will move past a certain age and see things very differently but if you feel pressured into making some you know if you have the means and the resources and you got some people pushing you, there can be some decisions that are made that have, you know, drastic consequences. And that's, there's a real layer of sadness there. And that also adds a layer of urgency there. So I guess, I mean, part of what we should talk about just a tiny bit here, because we're already edging our way into the, to the 50 minute zone here, but it's an important topic is, but is basically some ways that we can, we can prayerfully and creatively respond to, I'm, I'm tempted. I mean, yes, an issue, but also just people who have this struggle, who are, you know, children in our lives or who are family members or who are dear friends, you know, how do we, you know, walk through this and have a prophetic voice and also a loving voice? I think that's, that's the real balance. I think many of us are, are trying to strike here. And we, I mean, we'll need lots of wisdom yes. and guidance. So let me let me let me throw this in there to see if this this fits. Um, so the question can be: Well, how does your church feel about transgender people? Part of what I think Cameron and I are trying to do is, and this this is a this is a type of a thing. It's not like transgender people are a whole new category of humans. The the better question is is to deeply evaluate: How does your church treat people? And then how does your church treat people who have addictions? How does your church treat people who are, and then you go right on down the line and fill in the blank, but you start with seeing them as people whom Christ was willing to die for. Mm -hmm. And it's really helpful, I think, just practically speaking, and and this is not a single issue on this on this advice, is that really if you don't give a rip about who Jesus is, your sexual identity is not your biggest problem. If you don't, right. you know, you know what I'm saying? So sometimes I think that that's just a helpful reminder for us as Christians to not expect non-Christians to behave like Christians. There's one. But also to recognize that the starting point of somebody who is confused about who they are or in transition and trying to think about who they're becoming, that happens in the lives of every single human on a daily basis. That's not Now, the vast majority of people don't try to change their gender over it, but that is the common mm -hmm. human experience of trying to figure out what a human is and how I'm supposed to treat my body well and what I'm supposed to do with myself. That is every single person on every single pew in your church trying to figure that out. So if you can look at this as a type of a pattern of a pursuit of freedom that conflicts with an oughtness and a given identity, 
then the resources become available to say, actually, historically and pragmatically, the church does have a lot to say and to give and to offer here in terms of identity and even relational identity that transcend um, and, and produce intimacy that transcends our, our sexual expressions and our gender expressions too. So I, in some ways, yes, it's new and it's radical. On the other hand, by recognizing that it's the, a type of a thing, it's what what it what that allows you to do is to hit a lot of issues in the world that most people get angry about, and I think the correct Christian response is sorrow, not anger, mm-hmm. um, and compassion, not fear. Uh, and so yeah. I think that's something that I hope that each of us will find ways to to model well. And there, like Cameron said at the beginning and the outset, there isn't a, like a, a one size fits all silver bullet of like oh just know this and then this solves all of it. Cameron, you and I have talked before of people who have transitioned both directions and then back out of it again, and very few of those are Mm -hmm. instantaneous. A lot of those are very long. Uh, I think the last one you're talking about, 10 years maybe, of somebody journeying with somebody who um, finally decided that that pursuit was not giving them the life and health and satisfaction that they thought it would, and were making changes in their life. But that came from having a Christian friend who hung in there with them for a decade. Um, yep. so let that be an encouragement to you as well. I think in your, in your friendships, uh, in your relationships and in your family and coworkers and educational systems to, um, you have to pump a lot of water under a large ship in order to turn it around. And something that is as sacred as our identity is going to take a long time and should take a long time to form and to cultivate and develop. And so I wouldn't expect radical changes there apart from a radical act of God, which can happen. But to be realistic about the way in which humans change their concept of who they are is a uh, necessary thing for us to do as we were thinking about how to love our neighbor well. Yeah, and I want to add one more word of encouragement here. So as you've listened to Nathan and I here, there is a chance that some of you may have actually been discouraged because we keep quoting all these books and all this data and I'm always wary of that because that can foster the mindset that can make people think, oh, I have to be some kind of a professional or I've got to be some kind of an expert. And right now, our cultural moment when it comes to some of these issues really excels at making you feel like a novice and like a complete amateur and saying, well, you just don't understand all of the struggle and you don't know what you're talking about and you have to be a certified expert to speak into this issue. And I'm here to tell you that that is not the case. So should you read a ton of books on this subject and really master the discourse? Well, some of you have, you know, specific gifting in that direction, and perhaps you should read a book or two, and that's fine. Do all of you have to do that? No. The most powerful apologetic that you have at your disposal, as Nathan has been saying, is going to be love. But you need a robust and full theological understanding of what love actually is. If you want a crash course, read Paul's unsparing, beautiful description in 1 Corinthians 13. Most of us love it, think it's really inspirational, but it's another thing when you actually look at it and you think about these deeply, these deep sources of conflict in our life and you apply it there. And also recognize that love, full-bodied love, does not preclude confrontation. It doesn't preclude setting boundaries. It doesn't preclude telling people the truth. But it's going to place limitations on how you tell the truth. So it is going to place limitations on the way you talk about issues, even issues that maybe are issues that make you angry and that hurt. It is going to... because. Again, as Christians, all of our behavior is circumscribed by the way of Christ. And that doesn't turn us into total pushovers, but it means self-sacrifice is a necessary ingredient in our comportment with all human beings. And the same is going to be true here with the transgender issue and people struggling in this this area. And as Nathan mentioned, my friend, who 10-year process with this person, and was it occasionally frustrating? Did he have any idea that real change was going to happen? That he Did he know the outcome in advance? No, he didn't. He didn't. And that's going to characterize a lot of our interactions. By the way, of course, that's not limited to this issue either. If you've had anybody struggling with any serious 
issue, whether, you know, it's addiction or serious, serious crippling depression, whatever it is, you know that it's usually not a light switch moment. It's, it's a long, drawn out and careful process and it requires patience. It requires real work and effort and lots and lots and prayer, lots of prayer and lots of support. And you'll need the same here, especially when it's family members, people close to you, people you love. So just, I hope, I hope you can receive that as a huge word of encouragement that the real requirement for you is to love your neighbor as yourself. But you can only do that if you first love God with all that you are. It's, it's, we love because he first loved us. That's, that's the order and that's the arrangement. I think as we bring this to a close, then just to not add another 50 minutes to this podcast, but the other thing that Christ did so often is he was clear on what the boundaries were, what the expectations were, what the definitions, what identity was. His invitation to come to me is an invitation to a standard. That is certainly true. So it's not a wishy-washiness at all. It's a love that has clear boundaries to it. However, there's a sense in which some of these issues as Christians, we could approach them in a defensive tech tactic or technique of saying we have to be able to respond to all of this. But if what Cameron has been outlined outlining for us in historic views of freedom, for example, one of the other powerful things that you can be doing is modeling a positive vision of biblical freedom. And so when Jesus says, and the truth shall set you free, there's a dearth of good examples in our culture and our time of people who are living within a bounded set of Christ-like defined boundaries and are experiencing that as a delight and as genuine freedom and a robust way of being fully human. And so continue to live that out well, too, of saying that the things that Christ asks of us are not because he's maniacal, but because he knows how we best function and that there's a beauty and a joy in life, a richness to the identity that he has given to us when we are faithful to do it in the way that he created us to do. So speak of good things also. Tell stories of beauty. Rejoice and laugh. And don't be shy about the things that God is doing in your life that are good. Give thanks to him for that. And speak freely about it to others when you see good change happening in the lives of other people or you experience the joy of the Lord in your life as you walk in obedience to Christ. Make that known too, because part of the transgender issue is a lack of vision of what could be in the richness and the fullness of the experience of what it means to be human. And we of all people should be the front runners and the flag bearers of the joy of the Lord, the restored souls that we have, the forgiveness of sins, the confidence in identity and the stability to be compassionate and loving even toward those with whom we disagree. Let's work on that part too. And uh, maybe that's a whole sermon for another time, but let's lean forward in that way with a grin in our soul and a skip in our step as we engage a weary world who's looking for a place of rest. And if we know the author of it all, let's be bold in making him known. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.